Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 128. Today is Sunday, January 7th, 2018. And today's special guest is the organist from Australia, John Higgins, who is uh, the organist at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Morwell in Victoria, Australia. And uh, uh, John has been a guest uh, a a while ago on our podcast. We talked about when he was living in another state in, in, um, in Southern Australia. Uh, in this small city called Wayala. Now he's living in Traralgon, moved with his family. And uh, I'm very excited to be able to talk with, with John about his recent Christmas concert that he played for his congregation. And um, thank you so much, John, for joining in this conversation. You're very generous and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Vitas. It's a real privilege and honor to speak with you again. Uh, we've been uh, friends uh, for a long time, right? You subscribe. You were one of the first subscribers of our Secrets of Organ Playing pod, uh, blog, um, I think from the beginning of 2012, right? You were the early pioneers uh, and found our website uh, very early on and s- you actually stuck with us for six years now thank you so much john uh, for sticking uh, uh, with us in this long six year uh, organ playing journey and uh, i'm very glad to be able to help you grow as an organist yes yeah, so i'm so thankful that i came across your website and for all the help and advice you've given me because um it's one thing to be enthusiastic, but you also need the skills and the techniques and practice the right way. And uh, there's no way that I'd, I might not even be playing the organ at all if it wasn't for you. Absolutely. Sometimes we have this passion, but we don't have teachers. We don't have teaching materials, right? But today with technology, we can connect with you online across the globe literally australia is almost on the other side of the globe right uh, actually uh, vilnius lithuania is on the other side uh, of the globe as uh, uh, new zealand so australia is not very far from new zealand right and uh, it's amazing how we can communicate uh, it's early morning in vilnius and uh, late uh, afternoon or evening in Traralgon, right? Uh, fantastic. So, John, um, I'm very uh, eager to know about your initiative of playing a Christmas concert. Uh, how did you uh, decide to, uh, to play this? Each year, I think you're playing a few years in a row, this, this Christmas concert, right? So tell us a little bit about your... Uh, musical adventure yes so um, after I'd been studying with you for about a year uh, I was very excited about playing for my family and friends and seeing as we were living 
Well, after we were married, we moved away um, to Fella. And so when we organ to play on for family and friends, uh, because our church didn't have a pipe organ, or my family's original church didn't have a pipe organ. And so um, the church where we were married had a pipe organ and I'd kept in touch with the organist there and become quite good friends with him. And I asked him if he would mind if I played for my family and friends when we came back for Christmas. And he said, do you, he said, would I mind if anybody else from the church attended? And I said, no, of course not. I'm happy if anybody wants to come as long as they don't have too higher expectations because I was only a beginner. And so that was how it started. And then every year when we came back for Christmas holidays, uh, I would contact them a few months before and, and organise the the date and the time and and provide them with a brochure, flyer, um, invitations. And um, then we would have an evening of, of music. And my wife, who um, plays the flute at a very high level, we'd do duets together sometimes. And my two cousins, uh, one of them plays classical guitar and the other one plays the flute as well. I was able to persuade them to join in as well. So it's quite a family event. And this year was the seventh, the seventh concert. And I'm really thrilled that it has become quite a tradition that everyone expects it now. You see, John, you're doing something very wonderful. Um, every five or ten recitals or concerts or public appearances usually we get a breakthrough, right? Something uh, changes in how we treat the instrument, how we treat the music, how we treat ourselves on the on the stage. Um, did you discover something that you haven't uh, thought of before this year? For example, did you find out something new about yourself or your music or the instrument? Yes, many, many things. I find every time I play in public, I learn something new. Um, even playing for just an ordinary church service, I feel like I, I learn something every time, and, and particularly because I'm very early in my organist career, uh, there's so much to learn and so much experience to be gained. And if I just reflect on the Christmas concerts for a moment, last year's, um uh, i was quite down actually because i i felt like i i made a mess of it um i'd played my pieces reasonably well and because i was so passionate about the pipe organ i wanted to share with people um a little bit of a demonstration of the organ so just showing the different stops and the difference between the string sounds and flutes and trumpets and diapasons and all principles. And I was so excited in, in showing everyone this demonstration during the concert that I got a little bit carried away and lost track of time. And it went, the whole concert went for about an hour and a half. And um, this demonstration went for, 
probably a bit more than 15 minutes. And afterwards, I had quite a lot of, nobody was nasty, but I had quite a lot of negative feedback about how long it went for and that people just wanted to hear music and not hear about the pipe organ. And I, I was quite upset about that. And then um, the minister and the organist um, sent an email with some feedback from the people that was very similar to what they were saying to me on, on, on the evening of the event. And that was quite difficult to deal with that. And this time around, I was very nervous and apprehensive and had a lot of doubts in my mind about do they want me to come back and um, worrying about the time and how long it was going to go for. And uh, I was quite stressed about making sure that it finished on time because they said we only want it to go for an hour this year. And I felt a little bit, um, I felt a little bit hurt that they only wanted to hear it for an hour because um, I think that's quite short for an organ recital, even because there's other instruments as well. The mm -hmm. guitar, my cousin plays the guitar for 10 or 15 minutes and the flute duets as well. So it's not like it's just heavy organ music. Anyway, I this time around, uh, it it was about five minutes to go before one hour was up and I had two pieces left that was going to take about eight minutes. And <laughs> I said to the audience, I have two pieces left that will take eight minutes, but there's only five minutes of my time left. Um, would you like me to play one piece or two? Fantastic. <laughs> um, what did they, what did they say? Well, there was one person in the audience who shouted out, can we have 10 more pieces? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you see, it's so, quite a change. But what I noticed was um, I actually had to change my thinking a bit on the audience. I felt like this year was a real breakthrough that all of the people who were there had embraced me. Um, and unfortunately, there was quite a few less people this year than last year. And I know that some of the people that were critical of me last year didn't come this year. But um, I felt that was very positive because I felt that all the people who were there were the ones that really believed in me and the ones that really enjoyed what I was doing. And all the feedback I had this year was overwhelmingly positive and people wanting me to come back and even saying things like if you ever move back here you can be one of the organists too i see that's a quite an quite an achievement uh, john of course uh, of course i can i can suspect last year if they were expecting uh, organ music right and you were uh, demonstrating the organ and talking uh, about the pipes and how they work uh, they misunderstood your intentions right uh, and they were not prepared for that probably in advance they came for organ music 
right? Probably for popular organ classics, probably. And um, and that's why they some of them were disappointed, right? And this this time, since you didn't uh, do uh, demonstration, right? And you even uh, communicated with them an idea of omitting one piece, right? In and closing on time for one hour at the time mark, uh, you you sort of show that you care about them even more, right? And you're not even uh, offended if they said, no, no, one would be enough, right? Or uh, let's stop now, it's, it's too much for us, <laughs> right? Let's meet next year, right? Uh, you went that extra mile, I think, and put yourself on the line. I wouldn't imagine many people there of, uh, you know, suggesting to, to their audience, would you like two pieces or one piece right now for the closing, right? Because they're so eager to play all everything, but you you're so relaxed, right? And uh, not holding onto the idea of playing everything that you know, right? So that was, I think, the major major leap forward for you, too. I certainly learned a lot too that this particular audience, the only time they see me is once a year at the Christmas concert. Whereas all the other public performances that I've played have been with people who um, are in the same town where I live or where I've had an opportunity to build a rapport and relationships with people. And that was um, something I was quite keen to, to ask, ask you to tap into your wisdom and experience of, of, how to gauge an, an audience in, in new places that you go to and, and trying to tap into what, what they would like to hear and, and I guess striking a balance, isn't it, between um, pleasing the audience but also educating them and, and taking them to a place where they are maybe not comfortable. Well, exactly. If you are leading them, there is always a danger of going too far, right? Uh, if you are 10 steps ahead of them, they will lose you, or maybe you will lose them. They won't understand the genius of your, of your invention and proposition. Uh, if you are just following them and playing just crowd pleasers, right? Uh, popular classics all the time, D minor toccata and nothing else, is popular arrangements of, you know, I don't know, Christmas carols, um, then they, of course, they would be happy, but but it's like answering people's questions uh, on the podcast sometimes, right? If we only answer and give people what they want, it's good, right? But we have to also provide some, some I don't know, wisdom that they haven't thought about that and to take them one step further to lead them a little bit, not too far, but enough for them to feel safe and challenged at the same time. That's so what, what would did. be the different what would be the differences in how you prepare a recital, for example, when you did all of your training in America compared to in Lithuania or another overseas country? What sort of things would you think about 
in relation to your audience and what you might play? I think uh, in in every case, in, in America, Australia or Lithuania, it's important to connect. And one of the best ways to connect is to to talk, to introduce music uh, verbally with your own voice, with your own interpretation of the music uh, verbally so that you connect with them and uh, explain, of course. Uh, on the other hand, explaining music is like a um, mm, very dry thing, right? You have to tell stories, actually. You have to relate and uh, compare things that are intangible, right? Music is, you cannot really touch music, right? And if you, if we always say, here is C major and there is D minor, or uh, listen listen how how this tenor part sounds it doesn't speak to people's mentality that well it doesn't connect we have to tell stories sometimes we have to tell stories about composers uh, life we have to um, figure out how the piece was put together sometimes in musical terms and sometimes we have to tell stories how those musical uh, things relate to every everyday life's experiences right sometimes like in for example the famous f major toccata right by bach bwv 540 there is the famous opening uh, of uh, of a uh, long pedal point uh, on the note f for one page and a half and the two parts in the hand they play a canon right the right hand, uh, I think, leads at first, and the left hand follows. And it is, then they switch, of course. So uh, Pamela Reuter Finstra from uh, Michigan, when Osha and I studied uh, with her at Eastern Michigan University back in 2000, maybe three, I believe, uh, she said that, imagine that those two parts in the hands are two squirrels chasing each other, chasing, like playing with each other. And one is uh, running away and the other is following, like in a canon, right? Uh, so, of course, I was a musician and uh, I understood those musical terms and canons, but it was still very fun way to describe. And I always, whenever I play this, or whenever I write about this piece, I always include this comparison about squirrels, right? And people can relate because a lot of us remember small animals chasing each other and how fun it is to watch them, right? So these things could be very beneficial to talk about and uh, can connect with your audience. Uh, I don't know if, you, if I answered your question a little bit. Oh, um Oh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll include another little story. So um, one of the pieces that I played uh, was an improvisation on A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. Yeah. And the, the reason for that was, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, it was 500 years since the Reformation this year. True. I believe that the celebration was the, I think it was the 30... 1st of October. Yeah, Reformation Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so this, I spent 
many weeks um, developing the ideas that I wanted to work on in my improvisation. Um, and I found it so helpful, um, your articles on it, that, that, that it isn't just sitting down on the organ bench mindlessly and waiting for some inspiration from heaven to come upon you, that the great masters practised it and, and thought about the ideas and, and constructing the ideas like musical sentence. So I spent many weeks planning those things and how I might do it. And I, I used this improvisation in the concert at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. It was 20 years since the organ was restored. And I improvised on, on a mighty fortress then. And I did it again for this Christmas concert. But I went to quite a, a great length to introduce it and to tell people that I wanted to get across to them something of the struggle that Martin Luther went through, that he was um, really going against the, the ideas of the church at the time and um, was quite radical um, how he was fighting against the system and exposing some of the, the wrong practices and returning to biblical truth of um, that, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by paying indulgences. Mm -hmm. And I explained, I said, um, to convey that struggle, I'm going to play a lot of dissonant chords at the start and um, using very dark texture with playing at the bottom of the keyboard with reeds um, and using the swell box with um, cornopian and oboe to add a dark colour in minor key. And then I explained that, that um, I was like a ray of sun coming through the clouds. I was then going to introduce the, 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 the theme of the hymn tune and I just had a several bars uh, as, a, as a fugue introducing that first line of the hymn. And then I was very brave and tr tried one of your suggestions of uh, putting the tune in the pedals with a French-style toccata. So that was the first time I'd ever tried that. And um, that was quite difficult and scary, but it, it, it went very well. And I, I was really blown away by how much of an impression that made on people at both St. Andrews and also in Victor Harbour. And I even had uh, people who were organists coming up to me and saying that we don't improvise and we don't like the idea of having improvisations in a concert, but... Um, we found that yours was so approachable that we really enjoyed it and we hope that you might do that again. Absolutely. I'm so glad you did it, uh, John. Do you improvise regularly at home? Uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's a regular thing that I incorporate into my practice, but um, every few months, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for opportunities. So whether it be um, a hymn, a hymn tune to improvise on 
at the end of a service or a Christmas carol. So I also did an improvisation on Joy to the World, which is a very popular Christmas carol. And I thought rather than just playing through the carol, uh, if I could improvise on it, then it, it adds interest, but it also connects with people because they know the tune so well. Mm-hmm. True. So that's what leading is, right? Uh, you are using a familiar tune, giving people what they want, actually, right? But then you are taking them to a place they haven't dared to go yet. They haven't thought about that, if it's possible, right? To play improvisation or, or on Joy to the World. Um, so I'm delighted to know that you are uh, brave enough to try and uh, put yourself at risk, right? Because it could fail, actually, right? There is a risk of failing. How do you deal with this pressure, John? I was certainly quite concerned how people would take having two improvisations in, in one concert. Um, I, I, thought, I thought it would be fair to have one, um, but having two in the same program, I thought that was a big risk. But I thought that if I did, did one on a Christmas carol, Joy to the World, I thought that that would provide enough connection that, that people would understand why. And um, it was interesting. One person made a comment to me and said that there was, I played Bach's Toccata in D minor to start with. And they said, because we knew that piece so well, we, we, we knew where you slipped up. <laughs> I had a little bit of a mistake, a few little slip ups. But when it came to the improvisations, they said it was such a new experience hearing that sort of music portrayed in that way that they didn't really know what to expect. They didn't know um, right from wrong, as in the right notes from the wrong notes. And I think they were really carried along by the idea more than the perfection of the notes, if that makes sense. And it it seemed like it left the idea of it left quite an impression. And having the tune in the pedals with almost full organ and um, heavy reeds in the pedal, I don't think they'd ever really heard the organ used in that way before. Good idea, John. I want to ask you this. Uh, have you recorded your uh, concert this year? Yes, yes. You did? Excellent. I have an idea for you to transcribe your improvisations and put it um, into music notation, right? If you like, uh, for other people to play. Would that be interesting for you? It, it's interesting you say that because... Um, I had one thought that that I think there is a sense where improvisations are appropriate for that moment, and I because and I gained that I learned that from listening to one of um, your other podcasts. I, I wonder if it might have been was it Peter Holder from Saint Paul's Cathedral in London, 
Could was be. talking about that. And he, he said that, that the value of improvisations is in that moment. And mm. I, was, I was content just to play it and that's the end of it. But I actually, I have had a couple of people suggest to me that, that I should put pen to paper and actually um, write out the composition of those and maybe improve it, which would be even better. Exactly, exactly. A lot of organ compositions first started as improvisations, exactly. And the other way around, a lot of organ compositions were conceived as models for improvisation uh, too. So people could uh, learn how to improvise in earlier styles, in earlier ages, mm, right? So it's good that you recorded yourself and it would be a fun exercise and not very easy actually to take musical dictation from your own playing. Maybe, you know what I'm suggesting? You, you put those videos uh, on YouTube, right? Or it could be done uh, locally on your computer uh, because YouTube has the ability of playing uh, half speed while preserving uh, the the pitch level if you have the same software on your computer you could do the same locally and then you could uh, play play it back very very slowly and almost notate it note by note in real time almost and not quite but it would be much faster than always stopping and uh, going back stopping and going back in 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 fast speed Right. What do you think about that, John? Yes. No. I, it's as I say. I've had a, a, a two people ask me about this, and and seeing it, seeing as the impression that it's made on people, I, I think it would be helpful to me, and maybe someone else would get some benefit. Um, something that really you have helped me tremendously was um, you'd referred me on to your your friends, William Porter and Tom Trenny, who yeah. um, I, I hadn't ever come across them before on YouTube, but I've spent a lot of time listening to their improvisations. And I also bought the, um, the DVD of William Porter on his improvisation masterclass. And the thing that struck me most from William and Tom was they spoke of the improvisation being relevant to the tune and and some of the improvisations that you come across are technically spectacular but uh, at the end of it I sometimes struggle to find the meaning and I, I don't feel like it's made any impression on me maybe three, four minutes into it you just start to zone out because it hasn't captivated you. Whereas I find their improvisations are so clever with um, repeating the theme in different ways and keeping it interesting. And, and I re really made an effort with both of these improvisations to, um, to keep the theme fresh, to keep the audience connected with the theme and, mm -hmm. Uh, when I've seen some of the other improvisations online, 
I can't help thinking that that this one has more meaning. So I think it it could be worth preserving, but we'll we'll see what everyone else says. It would be a good exercise, right? Um, of course, uh, it can't be perfect entire the the whole thing uh, from the beginning until the end, right? Because it's on the spot, it's in the moment you your left hand sometimes slips and you follow it, you make it on purpose and you make uh, surprises, musical surprises, right? But when you try to transcribe it on paper or using your computer, then you can, as you say, improve it, make it a real organ piece. Sometimes uh, that's how I create the music too. I have a keyboard next to my computer attached and I improvise uh, the hand part first and then the pedal part first on the Sibelius notation. And magically, entire piece comes out right away, except except uh, the notation is all messed up with syncopations and weird rhythms because uh, the metronome is very um, strict and not flexible, right? And the human mind is flexible. Human playing is um, unpredictable sometimes. And therefore, I have to, uh, you know, uh, edit some things. But that's, of course, uh, like a second draft. The first draft is just filling up the canvas, uh, like uh, painters would, would say. And then the final draft would be make make it even more complete and and um, playable, right? Uh, include registration notations and articulation and dynamics, all those things that a stranger would need to know um, how to perform this piece. So think about that. Um, but not for too long, because your mind has to be fresh in order to rem remember what you did, even though you will be transcribing from the recording, right? It's still, it's still possible to forget those things. Excellent. That might be an excellent lead into something else I was going to speak to you about. Um, you were talking about registration in the improvisation, and I think that's critical because uh, without the right registration, I think some of my ideas would be lost. Um, this particular concert, I did all of the registration myself, and uh, I had quite a few challenges. Um, this particular organ was set up with um, the preset pistons it had four preset pistons for the swell and four for the grate and then it has another three for the swell that is for the reeds and uh, one of the pieces I played unfortunately I made a bit of a hash of it because I um, pressed the wrong preset um, it was a bit tricky on the swell the the trumpet, which is the loudest stop, um, comes out on piston number two and just the trumpet on its own and preset number three was full swell. And 
for whatever reason, I must have pressed the wrong, the wrong preset and uh, gave myself quite a surprise. <laughs> and um, so I thought I'd ask from your experience um, how you adjust to new organs, how, how do you manage the presets? Um, do you tend to do the stop changes yourself? Because I, I think if I'd had a registration assistant, I think that problem would have been avoided and I could have concentrated on playing, but I took the risk because I didn't have anybody to do it for me. And then by, by making that mistake with the piston then distracts you from playing and then it can spiral downwards. You're right. Uh... John, this is a problematic situation when you try to do everything uh, yourself. And if you didn't have enough time to prepare on that instrument, the changes, right, the switches, the pistons, or even the stop changes by your hand, it takes a lot of energy and sometimes confuses you. It takes um, your focus of the music and you make additional mistakes because of that. And sometimes people even panic and freeze and um, lose track of their music. Um, so it's better, of course, to rehearse uh, stop changes if you are planning to doing this yourself. For example, in Victor Gar Harbor, you knew the organ well. And uh, in your church in, uh, in, uh, in Morwell, uh, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, of course, you, you know the organ too right so you could think about what to do well in advance how the stops are laid out uh, in a, in a relationship with the keyboards where are those pistons and when you're practicing at home on your keyboard on or on the piano or on the ta even on the table you could imitate those motions with your feet or fingers um, pretending it's a real situation and then your your physical movements will prepare you for the real situation, real thing. Would that be helpful? Yes, that, that's that's right. And and it's certainly um, that was one of the main focuses of my preparation. Um, and it was just unfortunate, I suppose, in the, in the heat of the moment that that. Um, even though, even though I knew what I was supposed to do, I, I've obviously bumped the wrong piston, or or um, being confused with the fact that that um, that full full swell was a different piston to what I to what it would be logically would make sense. So I, I think if I played if I played on that organ regularly, I would ask the organist to have that changed because it doesn't really make sense the order um ideally you'd want the the volume to increase as as you move up the pistons um but because you're visiting you don't have the liberty to to change all of their settings <laughs> true john um uh, that's why i prefer to change the stops by hand sometimes especially if i'm playing music that is um, uh, easily constructed, well devised with segments and episodes followed by different episodes and in between of those episodes you change uh, the stops. Not in the middle 
but in, uh, at the stop uh, of episode, at the cadence, right? End of the section. Then it's really easy to, to use your one hand or the second hand or both hands you know, to change the registrations. And it's more secure this way. You, you know exactly what to draw, what types of uh, stops do, would you engage, uh, and not to worry about the pistons being different or confusing. I'm sure that um, many of your listeners would know one of the pieces I played was Nimrod from the Enigma Variations by Sir Edward Elgar. And uh -huh. I'm sure your listeners know that particularly the last, the last line and a half of the piece, there's a crescendo that builds up to almost full organ, depending on how you want to express it. And then a decrescendo back down to most people would go down to the quietest stop on the organ. And when I was rehearsing, my initial thought was to try and use these preset pistons because then you can keep both hands on the keys and use your thumbs to ramp the volume down. But there was so many quirks of this organ, for example, um, sometimes when you pressed the lower pistons, it would um, take couplers off or not take couplers off. And I, I tried uh, a number of times so to get this smooth decrescendo using the pistons and it got so complicated. I thought there's no way I can remember all of this in the heat of the moment in a recital. So I did exactly what you said. I ended up making the sacrifice to go back to hand registration. And I thought if I'm omitting the left hand, it doesn't miss out too much of the musical content. And at least that way I knew exactly which stops were the loudest to the quietest and taking them off in the right order without disturbing the couplers. <laughs> That's exactly right. Do you know the, the famous photograph of Cesar Frank when he's sitting seated at the organ bench and playing with the right hand and using the left hand to uh, draw the stops? So it's the exact situation here. You can uh, free up one hand, which is not essential, like left hand sometimes. Sometimes it's the, the opposite, right hand, right? And then you could uh, engage your stops uh, manually uh, and that's that's how i usually do except in in cases where a symphonic music is is played like uh, like vierne vidor or reger uh, late romantic when you have to use those big waves of sound uh, up and down uh, crescendo and diminuendo then to do this all by hand it takes a lot of skill and an incredible amount of practice. Speaking of which, how much time, John, did you have on the concert uh, organ in, uh, in uh, St. Andrews to prepare? So for the one in St. Andrews, which is my home church, mm -hmm. uh, I was practicing every day for about an hour for probably two months. Oh, good way. Um, but for the for the Christmas concert in Victor Harbour, I only had um, two days 
and about two hours each day. Ah, that's that's what we usually offer guests, organists here in Vilnius University, St. John's Church. A couple of rehearsals on two two days for a couple of hours. That would be usually enough, but enough for um, very experienced organists, you see, for people who have tried probably hundreds of other instruments. Then it is enough, right? Mm, was it enough for you? Uh, I described it to one of my friends. I said it's a bit like preparing for an exam, whether it's a high school exam or a university exam. When is enough enough? <laughs> um, I felt like it wasn't enough uh, for me, but that is partly because of my inexperience and also um, being relatively a beginner on the organ. Um, your technique isn't as well developed and uh, small small hurdles that you have to deal with, taking away your focus can, can really subtract from your performance. Um, I certainly um, would support your comments about trying to memorise things as much as possible. Just encouraging everyone that, that your suggestion is very wise to try and memorise as much as possible, and particularly where I had to do stop changes by hand, it really helped having, the, having those sections memorised so that I could look away to pull out the right stop without it affecting my playing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Memorization sometimes is a lifesaver in concert performance situations because then you can concentrate on the playing and not on the music because it's deep ingrained in your in your mind and your fingers and your feet. Uh, I'm not saying you should play on autopilot though, right? You should always be aware of what's going on and what's going on next. But... It helps in the long run. It does take a lot of time to memorize, right, uh, uh, John? Uh, right? Yes, and some of the pieces that I played were things that uh, I first learnt five years ago. And um, I was very interested in your um, your podcast and article recently. Or oh, sorry, your... your your questions with Vitus and Osra, um, you were talking about how deeply to learn a piece, how long to stay on it, and and your one of your subscribers was talking about coming back to a piece and rediscovering it later on. Mm-hmm. And you and Osra had a lot of fantastic thoughts, and I've found with many of my pieces, come back to it a year later, and there's such a, another level of deepness that I learn um, that with that piece and how to convey it to the listeners and being confident enough in memorising it that you can really focus on conveying the musical idea, not just playing the notes correctly, which it's a big deal for young organists and beginning organists like myself. It's a big deal to try and get the notes right. and But then to think about phrasing and articulation and 
conveying to the audience the musical idea. It's, it's such a multi-dimensional approach. Fantastic, John. We are getting close to the end of our conversation. Of course, I would wish to talk to you for hours, but of course, I know your time is limited. And um, and uh, let's let's uh, for the ending uh, part of our conversation think about what you have learned the most. What is number one thing you learned the most in your recent Christmas concert at Victor Harbor? I'll I'll, I'll talk about it from a personal point of view first. Mm-hmm. The 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 first lesson, the biggest lesson I learned was that that I'm on a journey that everyone, everyone wants to be great now. And, and believe me, I, I, I wish that I could play like the great organists. I, I wish I could play like you, but um, everyone's got to start somewhere. And the thing that stood out to me the most was the journey that I'm on that I can see how much my playing improved this time compared to last year. I can see the impact that it's having on the audience, that I can see that a couple of the pieces that I played this time that I'd played a few years ago, how much more fluent they were, how I conveyed the musical ideas. It was so exciting to, to realise what you can achieve over a period of time if you work hard. And so probably my biggest lesson was keep working hard on the right things and, and, and trust that there'll be growth over time. It, it takes time. You have to be patient. Um, someone very wise said to me once that, that humans always overestimate what they can achieve in one year or two years, but quite often we underestimate what we can achieve in five years or eight years or 10 years. We, we think that we always think we can get more done in a year, but often you can't. But when you look back five or 10 years, you'll be very surprised that you've achieved more than you thought. Definitely, John. It's a fantastic idea. It's, it's, uh, resonates, it resonates with, with me. I recently uh, reread the blog of James Altucher, the famous serial entrepreneur who wrote recently that it's important to try to improve just 1% a day. Any type of skill, any habit that you want to build over time, you just have to improve 1% a day. And every 72 72 days, this amount of uh, results doubles. And it compounds. So at the end of the year, you have increased your skill. Imagine how many percent, uh, John. You're good at math. Tell me quickly. A big percentage. (laughs) 3,700%. Imagine that. If you improve daily just 1%, if you challenge yourself just for 1%, uh, let's say in organ playing, right? If you 
if you if you have a piece of music right and uh, it is a long piece of music and you want to learn just one percent of that piece a day one percent if it has let's say uh, one 100 measures you only have to get it right just one measure today and the next day would be one measure but after 10 days right this fragment will be a little bit longer because your skill compounds and you can learn faster after 10 days and after 72 days it's like double you can do double uh, of course uh, things uh, so it can you can prepare this way for several recitals a year right if people can uh, write a blog or or a post uh, like uh, 1000 uh, words per day it's like uh, nothing right uh, what can you do with 1000 but after one year you will have six or seven novels written this way right if you want to if you want to exercise right and uh, let's say you're very lazy or or uh, struggle with uh, losing weight um, it's no no use of uh, running marathon right away right but if you can uh, run one percent of the marathon right uh, less than one kilometer right 420 meters something like that everybody can do and even if you cannot run you can walk you can walk take a walk that distance it adds up eventually and compounds and after a year any type of skill that you want to achieve any type of good habit that you want to increase in your life can be immensely immensely powerful and but by the way john the opposite is true too if you skip one day, skip of one day of not playing the organ, it's no big deal, just 1%, right? Who cares? You will, tomorrow will play 2%, right? Uh, and maybe tomorrow you will lose this battle too and think, oh, another 1%, who cares? But this compounds, you see, and after two days, it's no longer 1%, right? It's, it's, uh, it's uh, 10% after 10 days yes so it's compounds and um, it's so easy to keep keep losing this battle but it's on the other hand it's easy to keep going just never break the chain uh, keep a calendar handy and uh, cross make crosses each day if you practice or not and your only goal uh, john and everyone else who is uh, listening is to um, don't break the chain of of those excess on each day whether you're practicing for a long time or the just 15 minutes doesn't matter just keep those excess on the page every day and you'll be increasing after one year 3700 percent in your organ playing abilities isn't that exciting john yes and we we need i, I think it's important to in, encourage so many of the subscribers because um you know not not everyone has the same gift of talent not not everyone has had fantastic piano teachers 
and and practiced heaps when they were young and teenagers and then gone to the conservatorium and yet and yet it's so vital that we have these people playing even if it's just playing the hymns for a church service i don't know what it's like in lithuania or around the world but in australia there's a real lack of organists and musicians to be able to play even for church services and we can't not everyone can be the the international superstar like we were discussing cameron carpenter earlier and funnily enough i was watching some of his videos today and we aspire to be like these great people or thomas haywood in australia is is one of the the people that everyone loves in australia um but to just be a little bit better each day yourself and maybe we're not going to be superstars but we can still have an impact on our community and um perhaps to finish off with a little story uh i remember i'd i'd given up on playing music for a while um in my late teens and uh my wife um, was very encouraging and supporting and got me back playing the piano again and uh, a few weeks ago i was very very fortunate i was um i was asked to be the pianist for the children's choir at our church and we had the nine lessons in carols which is similar to what they have at king's college cambridge in the uk and part of that service we had the all the children in the church sung a christmas carol in the choir in the kids choir and my my son timothy who's three and a half had memorized the whole of joy to the world all the four verses off by heart he'd memorized and he was singing with the other kids in the choir and after we'd finished it was quite emotional for me because I reflected that it was eight years, almost exactly eight years ago, that my wife had got me playing the piano again. And that was one of the carols that I'd practiced um, to play for our family Christmas gathering. And I remember how many weeks I'd struggled trying to play a very basic version of that. And now, eight years later, I was playing it for my son to sing in the choir um i was playing it from memory i was looking over my shoulder at the kids the whole time playing it like it was um doing the most menial task at home and it just made me realize how far you can go in eight years exactly if you if you just improve just one percent a day you in eight years you will move a mountain actually uh wonderful john uh, i'm so glad we met and uh, talked about those things it's so excited exciting uh, to be able to uh, enter the new 2018 right the new year what we what would be your uh, new new year's uh, wishes be for our listeners i already said please guys try to improve any type of skill that you want just one percent a day what would your wishes be uh, john so i've 
I've come to a realization in the last few months that that uh, I really have to improve my technique, and um, I've been on an awesome journey so far. But um, I need to get some of these foundations of technique laid properly if I'm going to be able to go any further. And um, I've, uh, somebody else is one of the other organists is helping me out at the moment and um, going through all the Hannon finger exercises. And to be honest with you, I don't really like it. Um, it's very hard, hard work and boring. Um, but you've said many times in your podcasts and articles that we need to face our greatest fears and the things that that scare us the most is what we need to do because that was one of the things that put me off the piano and music when I was a teenager was hours of boring exercises. <laughs> but now I've done the full circle and realised that I need that to go forward. So in 2018, I think I'm going to be taking a bit of a step back from playing pieces and really concentrating on getting these exercises and dexterity and um, improving my touch and accuracy. And um, it's going to take some bravery, but I've committed to doing it and this other organist is going to help keep me accountable. Excellent. Improve your technique. This is a good uh, uh, wish for the next uh, year, right? And uh, improve just 1% a day, not not more. Too much and you will quit, actually, John. You will quit. And uh, too little, it, it will doesn't work, right? It, it, the, the progress is too slow. But 1% is just about right what you can achieve, right? Excellent. So if, if for example, there are hand-on exercises, uh, how many of them? 160, I think, right? 160. And um, there are three parts. And in each part, in the first part, there are like, I think, 40 exercises or some. I forgot even now. But you can actually do... 1% a day, you can learn half of the exercise at first, right? Around. Or one exercise if you want, if it's not too much. But I, I suspect it's too much a little bit. Maybe just up and next day down, right? But then you combine. The second day you do up and down, right? And it combines and compounds a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, figure out what works for you, John. And uh, what will work for me might not work for you, right? For other people, might really be really boring. I'm not really 100% uh, sticked about uh, scales and arpeggios. You see, Bach himself never played those things, right? And, and never wrote etudes uh, for people, but he wrote inventions for his son to practice polyphonic two-part pieces and three-part symphonias, uh, which which have intricate uh, polyphonic movement uh, between the parts. That could be also a good exercise uh, to treat your repertoire-like exercise too. Isolate sections and uh, play them repeatedly 
transpose them into many other keys up and down, just like you would be playing Hanon. Um, that counts, and it it also improves your technique yeah, and pedal technique as well. It's interesting the organist who's suggesting this um, back. He was a very very good organist and a professional teacher in his day, and he said that he played through the whole book as a warm up, which yeah. takes about an hour. <laughs> and it I takes said, more. it I takes said, more. It takes yeah, more. I for virtuoso pianists, maybe it will take one hour. For people with 20 years of experience, yes. But for normal people like we, it will take at least 90 minutes. At least mm. 90 minutes playing fast, fast. But right now we cannot play fast, right? We have to play slowly first. So I don't think it's, it's, it's a, it has to be treated like religion and uh, you know interpreted verbatim no you just have to treat it as a, a suggestion and see what works for you what your goals are yeah well that's right and i and i explained that that for most people like myself that have a full-time job and a family and and playing the organ is our hobby or helping out the church most of us we'd be lucky if we had an hour, an hour total in the day to practice. And yeah. the idea of spending 100% of that time on exercises is just completely unrealistic. So he was very good about it and he agreed that I would spend 10 to 15 minutes on the exercises per day and that's it. Yeah, 10, 10, 15 minutes is okay. You warm up. You can also warm up with improvisation too. That that's good, and and also improves technique and improves your mind too because you always have to think about keys and chords and progressions and modes. Good, whatever works for you, John. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. I hope uh, it was exciting for you and for our listeners too. They got uh, some inspiration for the next year for the direction they might go and figure out how they can improve 1% a day, uh, all kinds of things, including organ technique. Yes, and thank you so much to you, Vitas, and Osra as well for the, the wonderful, wonderful work that you're doing. And uh, as I said at the beginning, I, I don't know if I'd even be playing the organ if it wasn't for your generosity and assistance and all of the information and the training programs online. So um, on behalf of all the subscribers, thank you very much. And I really hope that you'll be able to continue doing that in the new year. Thank you, John, so much. Of course, Osha joins me in uh, thanking you and other subscribers. Uh, of course, you say uh, we did uh, impact on you. But we have to say the opposite is true. Without our readers, without our students and subscribers, we couldn't continue this work, right? Uh, how many years you could you could uh, uh, speak to the uh, empty wall, right? Uh, maybe a, a week or two or five, maybe a year. But six years, if nobody is listening, it would be you know 
<laughs> crazy. So if not, if it wasn't for you, John, and everyone else who is listening and practicing and sending us questions and applying our advice and tips and supporting us, uh, we wouldn't be here today, right? So everyone here is involved in this little community of secret secrets of organ playing, and we are very grateful for for all of us for this opportunity that actually we're all living together at the same time. Our lives have crossed, right? Not earlier, not later, but today or this year, and maybe next year too. All right, John, before we end, tell us a little bit, um, what's the best way for people to connect with you online? Yes, so uh, my email address is uh, higgins at gmail.com and I'm sure you'll be able to include that in the podcast. Are you active on Facebook? Yes, I have a Facebook account under John Higgins. Excellent. People will find you there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, John. Keep keep up your practice. Keep up your diligent work. Stay healthy. And actually, I want to say one just one sentence about improving our uh, all kinds of uh, things. Like, how about improving our physical health 1% a day? Uh, which means maybe... Uh, getting more sleep, less eat, uh, less unhealthy food, uh, maybe flossing our teeth, right? Uh, maybe all teeth uh, at, the, at the beginning is too much. But how about just one tooth? One percent, right? One tooth a day. Then two, two teeth, three teeth, and, and you will get this habit. Um, emotional health. How about uh, improving... Uh, our relationship with people and uh, sticking to people who we love and uh, with people who love us, right? And avoiding uh, toxic people who just uh, take our energy away. And how about improving our mental health, staying creative? And uh, uh, that's, of course, uh, organ practice uh, keeps this mental health also in good uh, shape. And other things like uh, writing, creating, documenting our progress and sharing it with the world. And the last one is improving our spiritual health, just 1% a day. That would be also one of the ways to do this is to remember uh, just 1% of your time in 24 hours, or maybe not 24 hours, but maybe you need eight hours of sleep, so maybe 18 hours of day, right? Um, or 16 hours of, of your waking hours. 1% of those hours, you remember how grateful you are, right? For some of the things that you did today or things that happened to you or people you met, uh, gratefulness, right? So uh, it also compounds and everyone around, around us will be, more happier, 1% happier every time, every day. And can I also add to that that um, to look around you too and, and see if you can make the people around you 1% better um, yeah. because when you are sharing those things, 
Um, the other organist who played with me at St Andrews for the 20-year celebration since the organ was restored, um, I was able to help him and spend some time and become good friends. And without any motives or agenda or just being friends, just being there for him, um, appreciating his music and learning from him. A few days ago, I had a text message from him inviting me to come and have a a tryout on um, two very significant pipe organs in Melbourne. And uh, it's amazing what happens when you enrich other people's lives. Uh, Sometimes amazing opportunities can arise that it wasn't it wasn't as though you did it for them to get something you just do it to be helpful and to be kind and it's uh getting getting to i'm going to play these two organs um in melbourne very soon just just to have a practice and try out on them and it's going to be incredible experience i'll have to pinch myself to believe it's happening Fantastic. That's a good musical adventure, which will be waiting you, right? Um, I wish you all the best. And um, this was, uh, of course, uh, John Higgins from uh, uh, Morwell, Victoria, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. And uh, he's living in uh, Treralgon uh, in Victoria province. And we've been talking about how he discovered his progress in organ playing in 365 65 days. That was really amazing and, and inspirational. Thank you, John. And keep uh, creating and keep sharing your progress with the world next year too. Thank you so much, Vitas. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.